Thank you, Paul. Morning. I had a young man years ago that was leading our choir at church, and we were doing this song as a choir. Yes, I was in a choir, for those who just, what? Um, and we would sing this song, and he says, half of you saying, it is swell with my soul, and the other half is saying, it is well with my soul. And he goes, I kind of like that. So do I. I think it's swell and well. So... Uh, either way you do it, that's fine, but he was really trying to be emphatic, and it says, it is well. Now, that's not a music lesson. Uh, he just, it would drive him crazy when everybody would take that S and say, it's swell. <laughs> so, it's still swell. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I have one more announcement I totally forgot about, because uh, I have nothing on my mind to remember, but such as, as it is. Gary Morris will be with us uh, next month, uh, the 19th of April. I'm trying to work out things. I have to call him back. Um, he's waiting as a good steward of God's money uh, for prices for airlines to even drop even more because he wants to bring his wife with him, which will be nice. His wife is a, a pretty solid artist, but uh, so she can spend time and meet us. But Gary will be here the 18th and 19th. Um, I think, believe the ladies are going to meet with his wife for a while while I spend some time with Gary on some issues. And... Uh, then Saturday night, we'll, we'll, we probably will have a lesson. I have to talk to him about that. Sunday morning, we're doing two things. He wants to give us an overview of the book of Ruth. Uh, that's not going to be what I will do when we go through the overview of the Bible. But he also, a second hour, he's going to do a, a little different spin on Christ in the Passover, since we'll be a w- couple of weeks late. But he'll be doing a presentation on Christ in the Passover from a very Jewish perspective and how he handles it when he deals with uh, the rabbis that he talks to and deals with. So I'm excited to see him again. I know many of you might know Gary, and many of you don't, but we're going to have him back in here uh, the 18th and 19th of April. So we're looking forward to that. So put that on your must-do list kind of thing. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 43 through 48, or how to deal with those you can't love like yourself. Uh, here's what's happened. Again, we've dealt with the various, and we'll prayerfully we'll get to a summary today. But here's, here's where we've been with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is dealing with what was taught basically by the Pharisees. The Pharisees had added to Scripture, they had subtracted from Scripture, and they had changed the meaning of Scripture. And Jesus is giving a solid interpretation of what was meant by various different laws and things that the, I think these were the top five or six, it depends on how you look at, that the Pharisees were mishandling. And if you look at, with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, it says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your enemy, uh, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. Now, love your neighbor is in plenty of places. We'll look at it in a minute. Hate your neighbor is nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Uh, maybe in some of the Talmudic writings, but I'm not even going to refer to those uh, this morning at all. Um, then he says, but I say to you, very, very much a difference that he's going to give his interpretation. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son, S-U-N, his son, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? 
Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's what we're going to deal with this morning. We're going to look a little bit at different things that we need to. So what I've got up here is the basic outline I'll be using for what we're going to teach this morning. We're going to talk about the law. What does the law say in verse 43? What is the law? So we're going to have to go back to what? The Old Testament, like we did last time, and look a little bit at the law and where this is included in the law of the Old Testament, which is Leviticus 19, 1 through 18. That's what we're going to look at. That's going to be the meat of this morning. The next thing we'll look at is what Jesus says about treatment of enemies. How do you treat your enemy? Who's your enemy? Who's your neighbor? That's difficult. Isn't that difficult? Because we like to love the lovable and like the likable and hate everybody else. Right? No, you guys haven't been out there? (laughs) Uh, One of the things he says for treatment of enemies is you're to love them. That is not the easiest thing ever said. Okay? Uh, If most of you know that the normal and easy thing to do is just keep your distance. So he says love them, pray for them. Jesus gives the reason for loving and praying. So that's what we're going to look at a little bit today as we deal with that. So let's turn, keep your finger in Matthew. Because what we're doing here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, we're taking that first phrase where it says, you shall love your enemy, and we're going back in the Old Testament to look at it. And that's what we're going to deal with a little bit this morning as we turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Is that him? Good. See, my my grandson's cooing at my teachings, right? If you start screaming, you know where I went. <laughs> When I first got here, one of the ladies says, you're a really good teacher. You put my kid to sleep every time. <laughs> I go, not doing so bad with everybody else either. So <laughs> uh, so we're going to try and keep these things in, in harmony with everything. Now, I want you to see, I want to, before we actually go to Leviticus and deal with some of these issues, I want us to know that this phrase, love your neighbor, is in many places in the Bible. It's not one time. It's in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Matthew 22, Mark 12. Uh, Romans 13, Galatians 5, James 2, it's, it's a, and that's just dealing with uh, how that phrase being used. Uh, we have also have issues because it's, it says, and hate your enemy, and I will tell you this, you cannot find that phrase anywhere in the Bible. And uh, a few people have looked at some of the things David has said in the Psalms about how to treat the wicked and the evil, but David's just taken up the gauntlet for God. God has it has to deal with his enemies, and David is just saying, why are you an enemy of God? Uh, but he's not saying, hate your enemies. He's just saying, the wicked, uh, and we'll look at that too, a little bit. But what happened, though, and I want you to understand what's going on in Jesus' time. The scribes and Pharisees taught in opposition to God's word. They didn't say, here's what God's word says, let's look at it. That's the predominant model you should always have. People should open up the Bible and say, let's look at it together. Here's what it says, like we're going to do this morning, and see what it says for yourself. The Pharisees, and and, and the, the predominant thing even today, is most Jewish people do not read the Bible. I don't know if you know this. They will say things like that, this is what my rabbi says. Or let me ask my rabbi, I can't think for myself on this because only my rabbi can spiritually tell me what it says. And if you do that, 
Even if you did that in Christianity today and said, I'm going to go from church to church to church to church and say, here, I'm going to look up this phrase. I'm not sure what it says. Let me ask this pastor, this pastor, this pastor, this pastor. I guarantee you, you're going to have a variety of opinions. Very few of them will say, well, this is what the word says. Um, so when you when you do that, you got to be very careful. You've got to be a good student of the word. But they're not students of the word. They didn't directly open up their Bible, especially in Jesus' time. Do you know you did not have a smartphone in Jesus' time? You could not open up a Bible in Jesus' time. You didn't have various translations. And first of all, there was only one that they cared about that was major at that time was, was the Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible wasn't even in Masoretic text. In other words, there was no vowels. Um, so it's very difficult to read. And if you add the wrong vowels in, you will have a misunderstanding of what's being said. The Septuagint was the second translation. That, well, that was the version they had, the, the correct Hebrew Bible, but they had one translation, which was the Septuagint, a Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. That's all that was available. And it wasn't readily available. You didn't go to Jerusalem Bookstore and buy this for yourself. Uh, to carry around the tombs, that are these long scrolls and things they were on, would be ridiculous. Um, I believe one of the rarest things in the Bible is when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't have a Bible. He has the scroll, that scroll that contains Isaiah 53. And he probably obtained it because he's very wealthy. And he was going back and he was reading this. And God so providentially saw that he had Isaiah 53. And that Philip would met him on the road and so on and so forth that you could read in the book of Acts. But Jesus is contrasting the true righteousness and understanding of God, the Word of God with the righteousness the Pharisees, the external righteousness the Pharisees had so put on the people and they put on the people a yoke of understanding and bondage that was wrong. And we've seen this through most of this uh, fifth chapter of Matthew. And the Pharisees uh, wanted to treat people in a worldly fashion, I guess is the best way to say that. Their treatment of others uh, was not a righteous way, because we know from Matthew chapter 5 that our, uh, although the time of the, the disciples at that time, their righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. And the Pharisees and scribes were not kingdom people. If I just don't know what happened. We died out. Huh! I feel like I'm in the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to what's behind the curtain. If that goes out again, it'll come back on, or I'll just tell you what it says. We'll be fine. Um, that has nothing to do with the corona, by the way. Just if anybody's thinking that my computer's got a virus. <laughs> That's one mention of it. Okay, we'll be all right. Um, here's what the Pharisees taught. They said, love your neighbor... But their neighbor was the national Jew. Now, think about this. We Most of us live in a neighborhood. And we'll say, well, I know my neighbor on one side, or I know my other neighbor. We don't have a whole lot of uh, uh, time that we spend together. But they're my neighbor. And we call them neighbor because we're like Mr. Rogers, and you know everybody's good in the neighborhood kind of thing. Um, but that's not what the Jew thought. The Jew thought is anybody who lived in the land that was Jewish, was their neighbor. That was who was to be loved. And they also taught that anybody that was not was to be hated. That's as simple as that. Uh, and I don't know what to do with those words other than love and hate. 
kind of idea. Uh, but this is none of this is what the Word of God taught. Because the first thing they did is they omitted to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you admit that, something's, uh, something's afoot is the best way to put it. So they, ha- they had omitted that. And uh, we'll see in a moment, not only did they admit that, uh, add, uh, add that to the text, they, they, I mean, they all, I mean, subtracted from the text, they also added to the text, hate your enemy. So they're already doing an injustice to the word of God. And so the Pharisees and scribes were very guilty of three things, adding, subtracting, and changing scripture. And it's really good. If you can change scripture, you can make it say anything. Therefore, it says nothing. Okay, so let's go to Leviticus, and we're going to see uh, what we're dealing with here. If we're in Leviticus, and you're with me, uh, some of the things Leviticus is dealing with in this section, it's dealing with sundry laws. Anybody know what sundry laws? Sundry laws means various laws for various situations. Remember, if we're in the developmental stage of a nation that requires laws in which to uh, line up with its king. The nation of Israel's king was God. And God has required certain things of that nation so that they can emulate His holiness. You with me so far? It's important. Because they are to be a holy nation. How does a holy nation become a holy nation without guidelines to holiness? And God says, just like it'll say here at the end of Matthew chapter 5, you are to be holy as I am holy, or perfect, in a different way of putting it. Um, so if we look at verse uh, chapter 19, it's real easy. We open up with a very simplistic thing. It says, then, Moses, then the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel. So who is speaking? God through Moses. To who? The nation of Israel. And he says to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. How do you do that? How do you exude that? How do you become that? And uh, Israel was to display the very character of God in their lives. They were to be holy because God is holy. That would differentiate them from what? Every nation. Every nation. Now, if anybody thinks today America is a holy nation, they're really mistaken. We're, We're an unholy nation like any other nation. Is there holy people and saved righteous people in America? Yes. Uh, Are we exuding holiness? I think we're doing a pretty bad job. That's my personal opinion. Um, I think there's more negative things said about the church for for the right reason sometimes because we're not exuding the holiness of God. And sometimes we're afraid to because we don't want to be separated out that we're different, but we are different. In in Exodus 19.6, Israel was given a mandate that they would be given the law of God and Israel was to be a holy nation and exhibit that holiness to the world. That's what Exodus 19:6 says. In 1 Peter 1:15 and 16, it refers to this verse for us also to be a, a, a to have that same behavior. We are to be godly people. So the godliness that that is to be exemplified either by the nation of Israel or by the church today is the same. We have the same God overall. And God's not going to change that He is holy and He wants us to be holy people and live lives, and we, first class we dealt a little bit with godliness, with His godliness. Uh, so there is, should be, and there should be conviction that we're falling short of that. 
But what these verses deal with is to be daily lived out in the lives of the people of Israel and all were to be holy in action. And God had to say, if this happens, this is what you're to do. So he has to give laws. Uh, Last week we went through some different laws and the week before we went through some other laws that lined up with the nation of Israel that has implications for us today. Now, none of this, now listen, this is important, obeying the law doesn't make someone redeemed or saved. But if someone is redeemed and saved, they should be obedient people to God, right? Do I have a problem with any of that in this room today? Because if everybody says, no, I can be as, do whatever I want because I'm free, and I've been saved and set free to do anything I want, you don't understand the Word of God. And somehow, if you do that, you will know you'll come under the discipline of God because God deals with us as His children. Okay? And God's going to give guidelines. So, so what is the application and implications for us today? I think it'll be simplistic once we go through these because they're not really that hard. Um, and... What we see here in Leviticus 19, we can call a charge to the people because God said, this is what I want for my people. Obey this. I want you to be holy as I am holy. So God gives out, uh, well, and let me say this before I give, go to the next step. Uh, this holiness that God is promoting touches all areas of life. It's all in, in all arenas. Not only in the home, but in the neighborhood with families, extended families, work, government, whatever you want to put on. Imagine if all people who were believers and lined up with the Word of God lived holy lives. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? So right away we could see that we've fallen short. We don't need everyone to be saved, but we, we and God does want everyone to be saved, so I want to make sure I say that correctly. But God wants us to exude him and reflect him. So let's kind of look at these. He has requisites for holiness that demands. So every one of these starts with holiness demands. So we're going to look at verse 3a. First of all, it demands reverence for parents. Why start with parents? That's kind of an interesting place. I think because we all came from somebody. We all have a mom and a dad. And one of the things we see in a nation is how to how does that nation respect its parents. So verse 3 says, Every one of you shall shall reverence his mother and his father. So as we look at that, how does reverence show up? What is reverence? Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's a godly fear, is the best way to say it, uh, to revere. Um, there is a fear that some parents try to put in their kids so that they're afraid, but there's also a fear that there's reverence and respect that goes along with. And that holiness which should and always begin at home. Kids should say, my parents reflect God, I want to reflect my parents. And then they grow up to be parents reflecting God. Uh, and it's, they should have a reverential fear and respect for their parents. This puts the home as a priority. God's got a priority on the home. I don't know if you know this. I, I have no surveys today like I normally do. But the home in America is falling apart. Falling apart. And I know that because I'm in the world a lot dealing with sports. And the things that have happened in the last 30, 40 years to the family is crazy. Off the charts. Off the charts. But it's getting worse because it's coming into the church. And the church is no different than the world when it comes to families and how the families are run 
and the ability to carry uh, discernment and discipline. Uh, it's always the teacher's fault, the coach's fault. It's never the kid's fault because little Johnny is perfect. And most of us know little Johnny's is not perfect. He's a rat. And he's a rat that's being allowed to be maintain his ratness because his parents think he's perfect. Or the parents don't want to deal with it. But this is where holiness is to be on display in the family. And it begins with parents doing their part and children revering their parents for what they are. It's so much so that Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3 say this very clearly. Children, obey your parents. Now, I don't want to make a big deal out of that, but that says the Bible's being read by children. Right? And I don't have a problem with that, and I think it's a good place to teach a child to read his Bible, or her Bible. Uh, and I think as parents, we're all guilty sometimes, or a little less guilty, but we should teach our children what holiness is. So I'm here to give you some uh, good insights as we go through these requisites here. Second requisite is holiness demands observation of the Sabbath. Sabbath. There's an S there. Everybody thinks the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, and Saturday is the Sabbath, and today is God's, the Lord's day, right? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you something, and, I, and maybe you don't know this. Uh, it's just not the seventh day. It's special high holy holiday days, too. So if you were in a high holy holiday and celebrating the Lord on that day, that would, that would usually start with a Sabbath, whatever day it was on. A Sabbath basically means time set aside for you to rest and give that time to the Lord. That's basically what it means. Uh, now, now think about this. What were the mother and father supposed to teach their children about the Sabbaths? What was the family to do as a family together was to honor the Sabbath? Now, I'm not saying all of us need to be Sabbatarians. That's not what I'm saying. Because, and just so you know, most Sabbaths are not rightly related. Everybody says it's Saturday, right? Saturday is not the Sabbath. I wish this would stop. Sabbath is the seventh seventh day, and we go by the moons, right? And if you look when there's a new moon and you count seven days from it, you're not going to find out that it falls on a Saturday all the time. So we have issues to start with, because we like going by our calendars we use. We don't look at the moon that much, unless we drive home one day and say, wow, that's a beautiful moon, look at how big it is. And then we get all excited, and the first thing I usually say to my wife, I go, seven days from now is the Sabbath. And on Easter time, I'd be even more crazy because I go 14 days from now is the Passover, and you look at your calendar and go, boy, are they off by a big shot. You know, they're way off. Now, sometimes your calendar start lining up with lunar, and you'll say Passover is on a Tuesday. It's not the 14th day. It should be a double Sabbath. Passover was a special Sabbath and a Sabbath when it started. So it's kind of interesting. That's why there's always an argument. When did Christ die? Figure it out. Um, it was the seventh day of that week. What was it? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? I don't know. Because I don't know exactly what year he died, do you? And if we did, we could find out what the seventh day was because there's calendars made for that. It's just fun to do. But we know he died on the Passover. All of them mean this, and I think this is important. All of them mean it is to be honored. It is to be set aside. This day was to worship God, not doing other things. doesn't mean you couldn't do other things, but are you worshiping God? And I think what we will often see is people do it 
as a mechanic or as a legalism, and they say, oh, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Do you realize the hardest thing to tell somebody biblically is what not to do and what to do on the Sabbath? So the Talmud, the Jewish writings, came up with a whole set of laws on what is considered work. Because the Bible doesn't describe, it says you shall not work. On the seventh day shall you shall... You know, and Jesus later will heal people on the Sabbath, and the the Pharisees get really mad at him because he's healing people on the Sabbath. And he says, "Man, you'd rescue your ox from a ditch, but I can't heal somebody because law said you can do that." But healing somebody was breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus said, "But I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm in charge of it. I'm over it." And I think that's important for us to see as we go through this. Do you know what happens to people who begin to neglect the day of the Lord that's set aside and don't set time aside for the Lord? Here's ready for this. I'm going to give you the biblical things that happen to people who don't set time aside for the Lord. They become harsh because they're disobedient. Even the writers of of the Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And what it's saying in, in the Greek in Hebrews chapter 10 is stop doing this. Stop forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Because some were doing that. They weren't coming together. If you don't keep God in his proper place, give him the priority. And I think that's what the Sabbath was, was giving a priority to God. You'll have no more tenderness for the word of God. It makes you uh, very, very... Uh, hardened towards the word of God. And if you remember, Israel became had a hardness of heart. And if you see what goes alongside of Israel's hardness, they did not keep the Sabbaths. Isn't that fascinating? You'll have less concern for the people of God because if you're not assembling yourselves together, you don't care about anybody else. And who at that point do you love? Who's your neighbor? And who's your enemy? You, lo- you, lo- you lose the distinction between that. And also within that, Obviously, hard-heartedness begins to develop. You have lack of guilt because you're not spending time in the Word of God and you don't know what to obey and what to disobey, so you don't, you don't have any guilt. And I think guilt is a good thing. It also goes along with conviction if you don't know that. Okay? You don't have a desire to please the Lord because that desire, since you're not spending time with Him and not spending time and prioritizing Him, that pleasing the Lord dissipates. You also have a huge loss of opportunity to serve the Lord. When we come together, one of the things we encourage is, here's how you can serve the Lord, whether it's in this building, or things we're doing, or just spending time with one another, or getting to know one another. We are to serve the Lord. As we see, because of these, the, what happens, one of the other things we'll see that comes of this, lacking of prioritizing the Lord, we see that people are overcome by life. They have a loss of joy, they have a loss of light, and they live in a darkness. I believe also, when people do not prioritize the Lord, they have, an, uh, they have ungodly ways that become more acceptable and more tolerable, and they excuse their behavior and say, everybody's doing this. person also loses self-control... And therefore, battles constantly temptation. And they'll say things like, I just can't win. I can't do it. I can't. 
And why? How does this all begin? We'll go back. They're not honoring the Lord. They're not giving the Lord His time. They're not prioritizing the Lord. And I think the most important thing, if you ask somebody, what's your number one priority in life? And they'll say, fill in the blank with something other than the Word of God. And God, they're going to have issues. That's counseling 101 for you. For anybody that does any counseling. Lastly, I think one of the things that comes apart, uh, about from not giving the Lord priority is they're, uh, they live lives in ways that displease the Lord. They're not holy people. They're not perfect people like we'll see. Now, and somebody will inevitably say, well, we're all imperfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. But as we spend time prioritizing the Lord, we're getting more and more close to what God wants. You cannot do it if you don't prioritize God. And it's interesting that the order here in Leviticus says, what? Family and God are are priorities. And if you look at people today, I'm going to tell you this, most people in society have issues with family and God. Right? Listen, I can spend 15 minutes at any store and tell you how who has issues in their family because of how they're talking to each other. And how they're interacting with other people in society. It's crazy. But it's easy to see. Third third requisite is holiness demands uh, that we do not worship false gods. And we've we've spent a lot of time in this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this. But idols uh, had to be formed. Idols had to be designed. Idols were to be worshipped. And guess what? God was very offended when you did that. He's a very jealous God. And idols were basically a replacement of God. And you cannot be holy if you replace God in your lives. So we have family, God prioritized, and if you replace God, everything else goes to hell in a handbasket. Sorry, but that's what I'm going to say. Requisite number four. Holiness demands having God's terms on relationship via sacrifice. Notice what it says in verse two, 4. Leviticus 19.4 says, Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Now, now, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings. Now, it's, it's interesting. This peace offering is fascinating because most of us don't know what a peace offering is. Right? If I said to you, have you made a peace offering? Now, first of all, we haven't. But if, we, if I was to say that and say, what were you to do? Would you understand it? And most of you say, I have no idea what it is. Well, go back to Levit- Hold your finger here and go to Leviticus 3. Leviticus 3, because Leviticus is the book of sacrifice. Verse 1 says, Now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, he is going to, make, he's going to offer uh, out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and slay it at the door of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood around the around on the altar. From the sacrifice of peace offerings, he shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which shall... He shall remove with the kidneys. Uh, then Aaron's son shall offer it up in smoke on the bur- uh, on the altar of the burnt offering, which is on the, uh, on the wood that is on the fire. It is on an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord is from the flock, he shall offer it, male or female, without defect. He, if he is going to offer a lamb, 
for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it before the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle it blood around the altar, and from the sacrifice of peace offerings he shall bring as an offering of, by fire to the Lord its fat, the entire fat tail which he shall remove close to the back uh, to the backbone. And the fat that covers the entrails and, and all the fat that is on the entrails and, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then the priest shall offer it up and smoke on the altar as food and offering by fire to the Lord. Now here's what it is. Let me give you an idea what the peace offering is. Okay. First of all, it's voluntary. It is to present, be presented God's way. It's a picture of Christ's work on the cross. It's a clear prescription to be followed. I know it's kind of, few of you kind of saying, now I'm not doing lunch. I understand. Um, but I want you to understand that it's given a clear prescription of how to follow it. It is, a re- it is a relationship based on God's terms. For he provides, according to the Bible, the lamb. And that's the picture we're getting here. So as we go back to chapter 19, I want to read verse 5 through 8, and I want you to see what, what's being said here is a requisite for holiness. Now, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So again, giving you prescription how to do it. If it is, if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is offense. It will not be accepted. In other words, you can't have leftovers day three. Verse 8 says, And everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. So what we have here is a, 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 pre- a requisite of holiness that demands having God's terms on relationship via sacrifices. God is saying, here's how to do this, and if you go beyond this, which is like eating on the third day, you're back in your sin. So God has dealt with things so there's nothing between him and you in relationship. Today we have Christ. Okay? So we're not going to go out and do these sacrifices and uh, and what is it called? Basically butcher an animal in this prescriptive way. But it's been done in Christ. And, And therefore, according to Romans, we have peace with God. That was a peace offer. Fifth requisite, holiness demands to share the blessings of God's, God with others. Verse 9 says, And now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean the vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of the vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, I lived in Homestead for a long time, which is past south of Miami. And Homestead, believe it or not, is known for something uh, other than racetracks today. Uh, it's known for its tomato farms. I don't know if you know that. And potato farms because you've got to cycle it. But tomatoes, uh, we don't see in the stores here because the tomatoes were huge. And uh, I happen to personally know one of the guys, that, well, two of them that had farms out there. <clears throat> and I asked one of the guys, why do you not reap all your tomatoes? Because you go on certain times of the year, when they were done reaping their tomatoes, you see hundreds upon thousands of tomatoes in their field. He goes, we can only do them when they're green because we can't transport them. I go, well, what happens to the rest of the field? He goes, I don't care. 
the I don't care part resonated with my wife and a few of her friends because every time the farms would do their uh, field cleaning and they would pull out their steaks from the tomatoes so you knew they were done, they'd come home with bags of tomatoes. I mean, bags of tomatoes and uh, because it was for the taking. But here's what the law is saying. The law is saying, <clears throat> I will make sure there is nobody needy ever in my community. We are to love one another, and one of the ways we do is make sure the needy have stuff. But it's interesting. In order for them to get something, they had to do what? They had to go get it. It was there, and I, and I was talking about, we're not just talking about tomatoes, because we're talking about anything that was in the farms. And we know Ruth, later in the book of Ruth, she would glean from Boaz's pl- plantation, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, and that was in Ruth chapter 2. But what it basically says, holy people are generous. They allow, they don't, they're not going to reap their entire field and basically leave nothing. They're going to leave it. God gave them, and it's a, kind of a great picture. They had sowed the seed. They had taken care of the seed. They, they, they reaped what they needed to reap for, for, you know, for their farm production and left the rest for anybody to take. And obviously when it rotted in the fields, it would be plowed under for the next year. Uh, but I think one of the things we see here in the community, those that are truly in need were taken care of. And how do I look at truly in need? And I'm going to be very honest with you. Truly in need are those that can't for themselves and they can get for themselves. Um, I have issues uh, with people that just stand there and think you can give them a full supply of their income by doing nothing but holding a sign up. Now, there are truly people in need. Absolutely. And I think we should use discernment. Uh, when we do help people. But think about it. All this, all this gleaning, it was there, it was free, but they had to go get it. And I do believe society needs to look out for those that are truly poor. But it's interesting that Jesus told a very interesting thing to Judas who said, man, that perfume could be, I don't know how Judas knew this that the perfume could have been sold for 300, I think it was 300 denarii. Uh, I don't know how much perfume she had. I don't know how much it weighed. But Judas was spot on with the economy and knew that could have been sold for the poor. And Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. So worship me first. Do what needs to be done for me first. But it doesn't say he never told him, don't take care of the poor. But because he knew what Judas was after anyway. But how do we deal with the poor? How do we care about the poor? How do we look at poor people? And I think that's important. Are we willing to be somewhat, show somewhat a generosity or share with others? You know, and it's hard in today's society. I'll be real honest with you. Uh, we used to have, again, after the hurricane, we had people in Homestead that were really destitute. And my wife would go in to a grocery store and a lady would come up to her and she said, well, I'll go in and buy you something and bring it. You got back. You know, or the people in the grocery store say, don't do it because what you do is, you give it to them, they come in and get their money back, and they go out and buy drugs. So it's hard to have discernment. But I think God will give us the discernment if that's our goal, is to share with others. Uh, requisite number six, holiness demands trustworthiness. Verse 11 says, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Boy, wouldn't it be a great world if we cared to tell the truth? And I think we said that last week when we dealt with, el- with oaths, and we were trustworthy people. And we were honest in that in, in those uh, dealings. Uh, again, I think 
everywhere, stealing is not uh, a preferred way of doing business. I think it's against all laws in all nations. Lying uh, is a law against God's laws because he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Uh, the use of God's name, uh, we looked at last time to in- invoke a trust. You know, I swear to God, uh, that's basically not being a person of your word. Um, uh, example, uh, is, a, is the world's greatest liar was Satan. He began in the book, Bible in Genesis 3 with a lie. And one of the lies he, the lie he said, if when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, when people say God is my witness, I think it's just better to just tell the truth. You don't need God as your witness if you're truth-telling and you're trustworthy. Uh, I would say if you're in a conversation with somebody, try not to use God's name. Just be a person of your word. Uh, which is funny because it says you'll be like God. Satan says you'll be like God. And then what does evolution say? Well, that's taught into the, as truth today in every school that you are God. <laughs> so, there, uh, requisite number seven says it demands honesty in business. Verse 12 says, and you shall not swear falsely by my name. Verse 13, excuse me. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. It's kind of interesting. You would make a deal to hire somebody for the day. And basically back then it was a cash deal anyway. You wouldn't say, I'll PayPal you. You know, so you would hire somebody for the day, and at the end of the day, you gave them their day's wages. It's not good for you to say, I'll hire you for the day, and I'll see you tomorrow. People needed, people lived, you know, on daily income back then, and still do in most of the world. I don't know if you know this, most of the world is dirt poor. Um, requisite number eight, uh, verse 14, says, You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. Which is interesting. How do you correctly ha- uh, treat handicapped people? How do you deal with them? And sometimes... It's hard for us to deal with that. We're not used to that. Uh, God wants us not to curse a deaf man, which is kind of interesting. If you curse a deaf man, would he hear it? He might be able to read your lips, but I think it's interesting because what God is saying is, if you're cursing a deaf man, I hear it. How about cause a stumbling block for a blind man? He wouldn't see it, but God would. And I think that's important because how often are the crippled, the lame, the blind, the deaf taken advantage of? I would believe this, and, I, and I'm going to stick to this. If we are to minister to any handicapped person, God is monitoring our transaction with them. And I think that's what it is as we look at this. Requisite number nine. Holiness demands fair and equal judgments. Verse 15 says, You shall not do uh, no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the, uh, to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor, your neighbor fairly. Uh, that's important. Uh, think of today's atmosphere. We, we do so many great things for the rich, the famous, and the white. You know, it, it just is the way things are mostly. Uh, we want to show uh, impartiality, but it doesn't. It doesn't occur. We want to be fair, but it doesn't always happen. Our earmarks of God's judicial policy is to treat everyone by the facts of the case equally. And most of us don't have enough facts to do it. 
I think both judge, lawyer, jury, they're all accountable in judgments. And our judgments should be impartial. But is it? And I think that's not always easy to say. Last requisite, because we like doing the 10. 10 a good number. And God did so too in verses 16 through 18. He talks about God, holiness demands people, uh, godly people, uh, godly relationship with people. I can't even read what I wrote. Holiness demands a godly relationship with all people. Wouldn't that be nice? Verse 16 says, you, are not, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of a neighbor. Again, with the neighbor. Okay, who's your neighbor? Uh, I think... The Good Samaritan's a great picture of who your neighbor is. Who's your neighbor? There's no loophole. Because the Pharisees had asked to Jesus during that incident with this, before the Good Samaritan was given, he said, who's our neighbor? Because here's who our neighbor is. Anybody I want to be my neighbor. I'll do neighborly things to. And whoever is not, I won't. And Jesus says, hey, the Good Samaritan showed impartiality, dealing with the person, and didn't care. Think about that. So let's talk about verses 16 through 18, the different things it says here. First of all, it says, Don't, do, do not be a slanderer. Which base, do I have that? Yeah, okay. It says, do not be a slanderer. What that basically says is attacking others' reputation, backbiting. How many times have you heard somebody's reputation being slandered? Secondly, don't destroy someone else's life. Don't just, verse 16b basically says you are not to act against life of your neighbor. What are you going to do to put something in his way that he may die? I know none, none of you ever, you know, prayed for the ill harm of your neighbor. But there are people that have done that. Don't hate your fellow countrymen. Um, in verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. So God sees it. It says, also, reprove your neighbor when needed. There's times that you need to. You, you may surely reprove your neighbor. Uh, neighbor, please don't do that to my stuff. I, why are you doing that? Why are you parking on my grass? Why are you doing whatever? We can talk to our neighbor. Reproving doesn't mean beat the snot out of him. It means spend time communicating what you're offended about. Please don't turn your music on. Um, your polka music till 12.30 at night. I don't want to hear that. Well, I'm sure some of you have older neighbors that might do that. Whatever. Um, don't, don't take your own vengeance. The Lord says many times, uh, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear grudge. Here's the interesting thing is, Lord takes out the vengeance. Lord dishes out the vengeance because this is fair and impartial. Then it says... This is the key we're getting to all morning. You are to love our neighbor as yourself. It very clearly says you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And it ends again, all these phrases are all encapsulated with I am the Lord. Now think about this for a minute. How do you love your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? And I'm going to say this. Anybody in your periphery is your neighbor. Everybody. So if you run into somebody at Walmart and it's desolate and there's no more anything in there and they're mining and moaning, help them through it. Console them. He or she is your neighbor. How would you treat yourself in that instance? That's why it says, as your, you know I capitalized that so it's yelling at you. As yourself. As yourself. The Pharisees left it out because they had a love for themselves that was beyond loving a neighbor. 
They adored themselves. They were like peacocks running around. Look at me. How wonderful I am. How grandeur. You never be like me. You're such a sinner. But me, I'm, I'm grand. I'm perfect. Um, see, real holiness, real holiness is to be lived out in our lives. We as believers are to live as God wants us to. God wants us to be worthy of the calling in which we were called. God wants us to have godly conduct in every day of life. And here the law is showing where we won't fall short. And I think there's an application or implication side to this. We're not law-observant Israelites, but there's nothing wrong with as we look through this that we see the applications for our daily life in this. The law shows us where we fall short, where we often fall short. We need God in our lives in every moment. Not only should we prioritize Him, but we need, because there's times when our neighbor or that person in our periphery is probably the most annoying person, and we usually call him our spouse, and we have to deal with issues. So we need that. We need to love our neighbors as ourselves, which is difficult at, at times. But how difficult is it to, to, for you to love yourself? Because you are probably the most unlovable person in the formula anyway. But that's not God's love. God doesn't love because he's a respecter of persons. God loves because he loves. And that's what he tried to show to the good Samaritan. So the question is, do we live up to God's standard? Do we love our neighbors? In Romans 12, 20, it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's pretty interesting. I think Romans is the New Testament, don't you? When was the last time we saw that in our lives? And who is your enemy? It's anybody you don't want to love. But God says, here's how you love them. You give them something to eat. You give them something to drink. This is what Scripture says. David said, he hated the gathering. David said this in Psalm 26.5. He hated the gathering of evildoers. And he said, well, see, David hated his enemies. He goes, no. He, David doesn't say hate them. He hated the evil because of what they contrived to do. And we should hate that. In Psalm 139.19, the same idea. David's love was for God above everything. And when people are mistreating and doing evil towards God, he hates that God has to deal with them as an enemy. And David says, why are they an enemy? And says certain things about dealing with them. But the Pharisees misuse Scripture to instruct people to hate their enemies. So think about this. Jesus is in a time where Rome is running the nation of Israel. Don't you think the Pharisees hated Rome? You know, Job in the Old Testament even says that he, treat, he as, a, as a person, treated his enemies with fairness in Job 31. Look at the, uh, Just for a second, go back to Exodus 23. I want to show you something. Exodus 23. Exodus 23 is also dealing with laws within the nation, and we're going to end here, so don't fall asleep on me yet. Exodus 23 is very interesting, because it says, 
if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away. Now, that's kind of interesting. Uh, how important is livestock to you? I don't know about you, but I've driven around America a lot and seen a lot of wild animals running around and doing certain things, and I gave them no consideration. I didn't know whose they were. I didn't care. I don't know how many times I say, you know, we say the same thing, what time did the cows go home? You know, because you're driving along. Uh, we were broke down on the Florida Turnpike for I don't know how many hours with a bunch of kids taking them to camp. And I think the funniest thing was waiting for the cows to go home because they just stayed and looked at us and we were looking at them for 12 hours. And I was like, when did they go home? Uh, we don't have a care and consideration usually. But in this society, everybody knew's, knew who everybody's stuff was. And it says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. So you would know it, you would find it, you would bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him, you shall surely release it with him. In other words, help the donkey carry its load. You say, what's well, an enemy? How important? Now, this isn't even dealing with the person. This is dealing with his donkey and his ox. Do you understand that? See, the scribes and Pharisees almost said almost everyone is an enemy, especially the non-Jew, the half-Jew, or the Jews that never wanted to come back, and they live in dispersion. That's a horrible place to be. Those are my enemies. What? And Jesus said, no, they're not. This is how you to treat your enemies. So next week we're going to pick up with how to treat your enemies. Uh, we're just going to stand and close in prayer. I know it's kind of abrupt, but it works works well. Uh, I would ask you to join hands, but some of you may be offended. <laughs> I've got to say it. Every once in a while, you know, they give me this free liberty to say goofy things, like happy coronavirus day kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together to spend time in your word. But Father, if we just spend time in your word and don't apply it, we become just like the Pharisees. Father, help us to grow in the knowledge of you, to take these understandings, to uh, uh, highlight and implicate our lives with a trustworthiness of you. Father, that we could be people that reflect your holiness in society, that we could be the complete and mature people in, in Christ that you've offered to us. Uh, at the time of the Pharisees, there was so much misknowledge going around and people thought that their deeds, their ex external activities were pleasing to you. But Father, you want the heart, you want the very soul of man to be pleasing to you in, in the very seat of our actions. And Father, help us as we go through life, uh, as we entertain others, as we spend time with others, as we instruct our children, as we are reflectors of your holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace.